Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood, and my guest today is the excellent Associate Professor Tanya Latti. Tanya is an entomologist from the University of Sydney School of Life and Environmental Sciences. We have an awesome conversation about how ants communicate, the mechanics of bee dancing, and how insects are essential to the planet as we sat down together to watch episode four of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, The Swarming Hordes. In the eyes of man, one of the greatest plagues on Earth. But from a less human point of view, they are dramatically successful members of a group that itself is the most numerous and varied kind of animal in the world. The insects. Insects. I think people have a general hostility to nature, which kind of, I guess, makes sense. You know, we were a slave to the elements for tens of thousands of years, so it kind of stands to reason that when we could push back, we would. But it seems insects are the ones that people are openly hostile to and that there's really no kind of reverence for them at all. And I feel like you have to... Well, I myself had to discover that reverence for them Mm. through David Attenborough and just through watching them and seeing that there's a much more complex interaction going on than I even dreamed as possible. Do you think there's a way of convincing people that bugs are more than just some annoying inconvenience? It's really hard. I think just historically, our societies had such an adversarial relationship with insects. So we yeah. think about like mosquitoes are killing lots of us and yeah, yeah. You know, plagues of locusts and whatnot. Yeah. And we forget that we rely on insects for like everything. So, yeah. you know, we need them as pollination. You know, if there weren't insects cleaning up our waste, we'd be drowning in it. You know, there's the soil cycling, everything, yeah. food for all the things that we do love. So I think part of it is learning and starting to realize that we need insects. Whether you like them or not, we need them. Um, And they're not as tough as they appear. I mean, I think for a long time, we've always assumed that there would always be sort of teeming masses of insects and we'd never have to worry about it. And we're starting to realize that's not true. You know, we're losing insects and we're losing species so quickly now that we're probably losing them before we even give them names. Because we haven't identified, you know, even a small fraction of them. So terrifying, Tanya. There's a line at the end of this episode. um, So it's 1979, and it's David talking about, you know, we've invented radioactive 
ways to kill them and fire and poisons. And to this day, we have never made one species of insect extinct. Oh, wow. That's changed? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely changed. I mean, it's really hard because there are so few people studying insects over long periods of time because we just assume they were bulletproof. Yeah. And so now when we start looking at historical records, it's hard to know whether species have vanished because we haven't even named them yet. We've probably named maybe 10, 15% of insects on the planet. So that means, you know, 80, 90% are still don't even have a name, let alone do we know anything about whether they're in danger or not. Um, We know that there have been recent studies in places that just look at biomass, so the weight of insects that they're catching. And some of them have shown catastrophic decreases, which, you know, that's a worry. Then on the flip side, other studies have come out and said, no, no, it's fine. We actually see increases. And I mean, look, there's you know, probably between five and 10 million species of insects, some are going to be fine. Like some insects love us, you know, they're cockroaches. Cockroaches (laughs) are perfect. Some cockroaches. I mean, there's hundreds of species of cockroach and only five that we know are doing well because of us. Wow. Who knows what's going on with the rest? I I guess uh, from my perspective, it only can seem anecdotal. Like I feel like when I was a kid, there was a lot more bugs around. A lot more Christmas beetles flying through the window, a lot more grasshoppers just suddenly there, cicadas. And that seems to have definitely vanished. I feel like I'm, I'm turning 40 this year and it feels like my age group were kind of the, especially in Australia anyway, were the last age group that had a little bit of wildlife still bleeding into suburbia. And it's been horrific over my lifetime to see that receding. Yeah, and that's, that's, I mean, most of the evidence for insects is really anecdotal, right? It's people remembering that, oh, when I was a kid and I'd go for a drive, you know, the windscreen would be covered in insects yeah. and now. But that, those things are hard as scientists to deal with because we yeah. also know that cars are more aerodynamic. So yeah, you know, maybe we're just squashing fewer. Or maybe you remember them more when you were a kid because you were a kid and you yeah. still had that wonder and you were looking at them and now you're you know, cynical adult. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you hear an old man going, peaches tasted better when I was a kid. It's like, yeah, because you were young and you that's had taste right. buds. So, <laughs> so we don't know. What we really need is data and that's what we don't have. But sure. at the same time, if we wait 40 years to get conclusive evidence of a decrease, it's going to be way too late. So we're in this, as a scientist, a really uncomfortable position where I feel like we have to do a lot now. But it's hard to get those numbers that I would normally want to be able yeah. to say, like, I'm 100% sure that the following groups are in trouble. So it's, it's not easy. I'm Dr. Tanya Laddy. I'm an associate professor at the University of Sydney. Uh, I'm an entomologist, which basically means I've never met an insect I didn't love. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first time you, as a kid, you were watching bugs? No, Was no, it always a thing? I mean, as far as I know, I don't... My parents say I was always playing around with things. Yeah. And, I mean, I remember... When I was really young, playing with slaters a lot. What's so, slaters? Slate, like um, little guys that live under... Oh, they kind of look like... They almost look like trilobites? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And they curl up in balls, some yeah, of yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that animal has more names around the world than any of the slaters. Um, roly-polies, sow yeah. bugs, pill bugs, they're all the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Every English-speaking country calls them something different, right, it seems. Wow. Um, but they're actually crustaceans, not insects. Really? Um, technically. But... I remember there were heaps of them, and I used to just, I'd mark them with little bits of nail polish so I could keep track of where everybody was, and we'd have little hospitals for them. And oh, you were fated to be who you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it was clear fairly early on. You know? <laughs> so, do, what, like, what do you do? Do you go out on expeditions and 
search for new species or search for declines in population? Like what? what Do you what's, mean me personally? Yeah, you personally. Uh, I'm more an insect ecologist, uh-huh. so I study how insects interact with the world around them and yeah. with each other. So some of that's lab work. So often we'll t- do things like take ant colonies into the lab and watch what they do and poke them and do stuff like that. Um, other times we go out and do surveys. Depends on the question we're trying to address. I, I don't name species myself. There uh-huh. are scientists called taxonomists who do that. Um, I'm going to put a plug in for taxonomists because they're <laughs> awesome and we need more of them. And there's so few and they get so few funding that it's a huge problem because I can't do my job if something doesn't have a name. Yeah. You know, I need that basic label to be able to do anything with it. And, you know, the people who do that, there's not many of them anymore. There's a great line in the first episode of this uh, series where David's talking about Charles Darwin going to the Galapagos and how he lifted up a random leaf and there were 17 beetles that he'd never (laughs) seen before. Um, And David says, As he wrote in his journal, it's enough to disturb the composure of the entomologist's mind to contemplate the future dimension of a complete catalogue. I mean, he's not wrong at all. (laughs) I mean, I reckon most of us, even in urban areas could go into your backyard or back courtyard or local park and find new species of insects. Really? That's how little we know about them. Wow. I would I would bet good money that most people could do that if you knew what you were looking for. We barely have a handle. In fact, we don't even know how many species there are yeah, on Earth. Yeah, we yeah. don't even know. And the estimates are wildly, wildly divergent. Like some estimates say between eight and ten million. One um, estimate said one trillion. Individual species. Individual species, which would be more stars than the Milky Way galaxy has. So, I mean, those are huge differences. Like, those are massive orders of magnitude difference in estimates. And, I mean, the one trillion estimate came around because (laughs) they looked at um, the number of parasitic species that were living, I think, inside the guts of particular insects. Mm -hmm. And then worked out that for each, you know, insect, there were all of these different potential micro symbiotes and things and that wow. each of those species had their own kind of unique ecosystem and they did the maths and we're like well that's a lot <laughs> yeah. so who knows that one trillion might be a massive overestimate but the point is we don't know and we really ought to know something like that right yeah yeah i mean even if you're just talking about it selfishly for our own continued survival it would probably be good to know what everything is yep. you know every time a section of rainforest is obliterated you know i mean apart from the just the horrific tragedy of all this ecosystem disappearing mm. and all these beautiful animals going, you know, there is that thing in the back of my head going, well, maybe there was some bug that had the cure for cancer in it. Right. And we've just kind of, you know, annihilated it for another soybean field. Yep. We have just, no idea. We don't know the interactions. And it is really life, like, all the way down. Like, you'll have a cockroach, and that cockroach has a symbiote that allows it to digest, um, you know, wood. But then if you look really closely at that symbi- symbiotic para- um, protozoan, it's got these little spiky things on it. And those spiky things are symbiotic bacteria. But then if you look at the base of those symbiotic bacteria, there's another symbiotic organism that's helping to, like, make that organism. So you've just got, like, boop, 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 <laughs> just layers and layers of life. And we forget that. When, when something goes extinct, it's not just one species. No. It's that whole ecosystem that that thing is likely carrying inside of it. It's all, you know, the parasites, all of its symbiotes, all of those things re- are removed from the ecosystem, not just one. Yeah, I think because we live our lives in such a macro way, it's really hard to think about this kind of fractal infinity in both (laughs) directions. But I feel like life or the experience of life is a lot richer when you kind of uh, take this stuff in and sit with it. And, you know, uh, I find it very comforting to be a part of this thing. But that doesn't diminish 
my sense of self. Yeah, you're both super, super unique and special and also not special really? at all. <laughs> 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 like, you, you have to hold both of those ideas. Yeah, yeah. Time. I feel like that's kind of should be the catchphrase going forward from now on. <laughs> you're not special. <laughs> but you are. I mean, at the same time, yeah, you, you are. are. Yeah, you are. Just to be here, like every single one of your ancestors had to survive long enough to reproduce going mm. back, right back to the very beginning of life, you know, four billion years ago. That's extraordinarily improbable. Highly organized social behavior seems to have evolved several times among the insects. Once among termites, which are related to cockroaches, and several times among the ants, bees, and wasps. Ants were the first animal when I was a kid that clued me in that there was some kind of consciousness or there was something going on outside of what I could understand. And I, re I remember it so clearly, being about six or seven and tearing off strips of ham and just throwing them on the footpath and watching, you know, the ants scurry up and then relaying the messages. And then all of a sudden there was the, the phalanx of big-headed guys guarding <laughs> it and there was the, a real procedure to what was going on. And I remember being very little and feeling like a consciousness upload in that moment of like, oh, they're not just little dots scurrying around. There's a whole system to this. Yeah, I mean, it's only been relatively recently we've really started to realize how much, I don't even want to say intelligent because it feels like a loaded word, yeah. but how many decisions, how many complex decisions these systems can make. So, I mean, wasps, we know, can recognize human faces and remember. Um, and they have that really? ability because they can recognize their each other's faces. They have dominance hierarchies and they yeah. have different patterning on their faces. And so they have that cognitive architecture to be able to do that. Wow. You know, but then on the other hand, you get some species of ants where the individuals are, like, really not clever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, astonishingly not clever yeah. when they're alone. Yeah. But you put lots of them together and ants, you know, first agriculture. Yeah. You know, ants farm aphids. There's ants that um, farm fungi, so leafcutter ants will do that. I mean, that's fantastic. That's yeah. a sophisticated behavior, but it's that collective level. Is it, would an, would a, an analogy be that it's almost like each ant is a separate neuron for a collective brain that's all working for the one outcome? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good analogy, I yeah. think, because each of our neurons has pretty simple behaviors, yeah. but collectively, we're they're us, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you took a neuron away from the brain and just looked at it, you'd be like, well, that's really simple and basic, but yeah, you put yeah. them together and they do more. And that seems to be similar to the way ant colonies and bee colonies work. So yep. The queen is usually the most important because yeah. she's the reproductive yeah. face. You know? <laughs> but she's not in charge. Like, uh. she has no more control over the colony in terms of like building structures or anything than any of the other ants. She's not So any she's smarter. not sitting there like beaming out, I want a chamber and nah. nothing. But it's a hard way to think about things because I think humans are used to hierarchies where there's like someone in charge who's the smart person who comes up with the plan and then yep. gives it to the other people who then build it. And that's just not. That's not how social insects work. Yeah, it's, it's, it always seemed to me that we could learn so much in the structure of our societies from ants and bees. Yeah, I always say we don't we don't want a society like an ant colony or a bee no. colony. Like it's it's rough, yeah. you know. And um, we don't want that necessarily. But I think we can learn lessons about how to build a better, um, more integrated community. Yeah. So when we think about we've got the internet now, we're all yeah. communicating across bigger distances, we're spreading information faster. Yeah. Our systems aren't really set up to deal with that, right? We're getting all this weird and misinformation stuff happening because it's not the system we, it's not the community we evolved in. Mm. And I think if we look at how social insects like ants and bees prevent misinformation from spreading, because they have the same problems, individuals make mistakes. Mm. And if those mistakes propagated through the whole colony, then 
it would it, there'd be huge problems. What do you mean by that? An individual makes a mistake. So imagine an ant goes and finds a food source. And yeah. She's like, this is great. She runs yeah, yeah, back, yeah. tells all of her buddies, lays a trail. Everyone's like, yay, food. <laughs> and then that food moves. <laughs> you know? Okay. All that trail information is still telling the ants. There is a great food source there, but yeah. that food is gone now. Right. And so the ants have to have a mechanism to be like, wait, Bob has a terrible sense of taste. <laughs> you know? I'm just, I'm fascinated by just the different forms of communication that evolve independent of each other it's mm. just there's so much and there's so much we're missing because even if you sample an ant trail you'll you can run it through a machine that'll tell you which chemicals are there but you don't know which of those chemicals is the key one or is it the blend of them and i don't have the brain to tease that apart is there an is there an analogous way to describe it of how a human would be perceiving that i mean there's all sorts of techniques they can do there's something called an electro antennagram which essentially involves popping off an antenna and then putting a probe into it and into the head of the ant. Into the antenna. And so, because the way antenna work is they've got almost like grooves, receptors that pick up particular scents. And so when that is triggered, it sends like a message. Right. And the machine can pick up that pulse, that impulse rather. So you can use that to kind of figure out what the ant can smell. But it's kind of grim. <laughs> The most aggressive ants of all are the army ants that build no permanent nest at all. They also have one of the most advanced societies of all insects. They make their own bivouac by linking their legs and bodies together with strong, tiny claws. Somewhere in the middle of this living ball is the queen and immature ant protected by the bodies of the workers themselves. So... When ants or termites are building a massive structure like that, does each individual have, like, the blueprint in their head or is each one just performing a small function that then contributes to the whole? Yeah, it's kind of the magic of, of ants and termites, I think, is that, no, individuals don't have a blueprint. So that ant doesn't know that, like, if I grab here, 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 and here, and, you know, Jenny over there does the same thing, we're going to create this great structure. Every ant is probably just following a very simple rule of like grab the ant in front of you and yeah. let someone else grab you and then stay still yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever those rules are. Yeah. But then collectively you get these structures emerging from those simple rules and when you boil it down the rules we think are pretty simple. And so some ants, um, the ants I study most make pheromone trails. Uh -huh. So most of their communication is trail based because so they're always tapping their abdomens laying pheromone. Uh -huh. That pheromone lasts about 20 minutes before it evaporates. Right. And so if you are making a long trail between nests, there's just less pheromone per unit of length, right? Because there's just less traffic on it because it's so long. Yep. Whereas if it's a short direct trap, you get more traffic because there's less space. And so you right. get more pheromone. And because ants are more likely to choose more pheromone over less pheromone, those short trails get reinforced more. And when you look at the time lapse, it's exactly what you see, that initially there's like a cobweb of trails going all right. over the place, but the short ones get stronger and stronger until you just have the shortest path. Right. So, so the, yeah, wow, okay. You actually see something similar even with, well, I guess not so much in Australia because you don't really have snow all that much. Back home in Canada, if you have snow and a footpath that's kind of going in slightly inefficient direction, people will cut corners. Mm -hmm. And the first person that walks across will kind of flatten the snow a little bit, which makes it more likely the next person will walk on that track. Sure. And then flatten yeah, yeah. the snow and eventually get this self-organized shortcut. And if you were looking at it from a higher perspective, you'd be like, oh, the humans have collectively found the shortest path. But each of us was only following a really simple rule, which is like, I want to minimize the distance I travel, but I also want to walk easily. Yeah. And a lot of what 
you know, we try to do is to work out what those rules are. Mm. And then you can use computer simulations, for example, to kind of see, okay, can we recreate these structures? Um, Sometimes, sometimes not. There's somewhere we just don't really get it. I love that something that's seemingly so simple, an ant, is still shrouded in so much mystery and so much unknown. It's wonderful. I mean, like 99% of what I do every day is saying, I don't know. (laughs) What's the answer to that? I have no idea. But that must be really invigorating, right, to know that you've always got, there's always stuff to discover. I mean, I know that I could live a thousand lifetimes and I'd still maybe know half a percent of stuff about one species of insect, let alone all of them. I mean, you're never bored. Spider wasps. You're delighted by this? (laughs) I love seeing these. (laughs) Do they exclusively eat spiders? Yeah, that species in particular targets huntsmen, spiders. Have you seen one? They're all around in the summer. If you keep an eye out, they're huge and orange and black. Oh, and they've got those weird dangly legs. Yeah, the dangly legs. They sting the spider to paralyze it. Then they pull it into a burrow and lay their eggs in it. And then the spider doesn't die because they don't have refrigeration. So you got to keep the animal alive while the larva eats it. But it's paralyzed and they kind of eat the non-essential organs first. And then, yeah, it's grim. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff. I mean, it's the movie Aliens is what it is. It's exactly the plot of Aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Parasitoid wasps, we're starting to realize there's a lot more of them than we thought. Right. Because often they're really small. The smallest animal is a species of parasitoid wasp. It's called a fairy wasp, but it's almost microscopic. Whoa. Like tiny, but has like legs and little wings and everything. But it's, it's about the same size as an amoeba or a paramecium. Really? As small as an amoeba? Yeah. Look it up. Look it up. <laughs> I read a thing the other day it, 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 that um, the smallest species of ant could live inside, a bunch of them could live inside the brain casing of the biggest species of ant. That sounds about right. Oh. I mean, but they have organs and things, but they're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just little. And obviously a little brain and everything. Yeah, everything. All, all, all the bits, but tiny. There's a great picture that a photo- I think Alex Wilde, a photographer, took of like one of the large species of ants with like a little tiny, one of the smallest species just sitting on its eye. Oh. <laughs> and, like, it's just shocking the difference yeah. in size. Unlike termites, who travel over land to find their food, bees fly. So they're unable to lay a scent trail on the ground. And bees have had to evolve a different method of telling their co-workers where the food is. Do you know how honeybees communicate? Dancing. Yeah. Yeah, how does that work? That's really complex mathematics, right, what they're doing. Um, I mean, it is and it isn't. Yeah. So it's there's heuristics they use, presumably, to kind of solve that. But um, what, Sorry, what's your heuristics? Like rules of thumbs. So they're okay. not necessarily doing all the calculations. They're okay. little bee heads. So when a bee comes back from a really good food source, yeah. she goes to the dance floor. We got to dance. Who doesn't like dancing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I'm glad they're not as self-conscious as I am. <laughs> <No. Yeah. laughs> and so what she'll do, the, the one who knows where the food is, she'll kind of wiggle her abdomen, like, you know, a little booty shake. Uh, And she does this sort of figure, almost figure eight kind of, well, more like a circle with a line down the middle. It's kind Mm. of hard to to, um, verbally describe. But anyway, that that waggle, that sort of mm, booty shake phase, the length of that correlates to how far from the nest the food source is. So a really long waggle means it's far. A really short one means it's close. But that's not it. Because the direction, the angle of that waggle 
tells the bees the distance to, or sorry, the direction of the food source relative to the sun. So they can kind of translate that and go like, okay, now I've got to go in that direction. Yeah. And then the number of circuits she does and how excited she is tells them how good she rates it. <laughs> so, so from that, they get all this information. They also get scent cues because she usually smells like the flowers. So they go, okay, I'm looking for something that smells like lavender and it's over in that direction. It's about, you know, a kilometer away. Was that something that took a long time? I mean, obviously it took a long time to figure out, but did, was, is there a specific individual that figured out what was going on? Yeah, a guy named Von Frisch figured it out and got a Nobel Prize for it. Wow. Because it was pretty, pretty mind-blowing. I mean, even yeah. now it's mind-blowing. This might, this might be a dumb question. Mm-hmm. When you get these absurd specific matchups between an insect and a type of flower, does that... It... it breaks my brain in a way, especially when you start getting into orchids and stuff mm-hmm. and it's, you know, this specific, you know, flower looks exactly like the female moth that this male moth is trying to mate with. And just, yeah. it's just so, um, you know, it really makes me empathize with people that believe in intelligent design mm-hmm. because it's, you know, really quite a thing to get your head around. Does this kind of symbiosis denote a type of consciousness, or is it just these minuscule changes ratcheting up over millions of years that form this ridiculous matchup? Yeah, I mean, it helps to remember that these systems have had millions of years to get here. They yeah. didn't need to show up fully formed straight away. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it also sometimes helps to think of it, I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship now, but that doesn't mean that each of those partners is what's the word, altruistic towards the other, right? Sure, so from yeah. So from the flower's point of view, one of the risks of being a flower that lots of things visit mm. is that if you're feeding, say, honeybees, which will visit all sorts of different flowers, your pollen may end up on the wrong species, mm. and that's a waste for you. So maybe if you tweak, if you kind of, you could imagine a mutant that's just tweaked a little bit, so now only one kind of insect can really access it. That's a benefit because now that insect is maybe only going to feed on others like it. Yeah. And so its pollen's going to get where it wants to be. And then you can imagine maybe that insect evolves, just one of those mutants is just a little bit better able to get at that weird shaped flower. And then that flower has a mutant that's a little bit weirder. And then you know, it's this, this sort of trade-off of, of evolution between both of the partners in yeah. this kind of dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so... At the end, where we are now, you see these ridiculous things where the flower might be super long and the moth has a ridiculous tongue, yep. but it didn't need to start that way. Isn't that how Darwin discovered one of the—I can't remember if he discovered the moth first or the orchid first, but he, it was a really long passage that mm-hmm. had to be penetrated, and then he hypothesized that he would find a moth with the exact right mouth part yep. to get in there, and yeah. then, of course, did. Yeah, so that—I mean, that's one strategy plants can use to try to get their pollen where yeah. they want it. But then on the other hand, it can backfire. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bees will rob nectar. Yeah. So if it's too long for them to get their tongue, they just bite a hole. <laughs> that's <laughs> great. Take that plant. Well, there's a lot of... Ge- Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe I've got a dirty <laughs> mind. But there's a lot of genital shapes in, in some plants, right? Oh, Picture yeah. Picture plants and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Is that just that, that nature can only come up with certain shapes and it's just the most effective ones kind of replicate you know, from flowers to animals all through? Yeah, it's not so much that nature... I mean, there's as much variation as you can imagine, yeah. but certain shapes are just going to be more likely to work. Yeah. You know, they're going to be more likely to attract insects, and yeah. those ones are the ones that will reproduce. Yeah. And then, you know, those ones get copied over and over again. Yeah, so yeah. plants have basically talked other organisms into being flying genitals for them. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> not to think too much about it, honestly. <laughs> Spend the night. Drops the boil. The night. The night. Perfume. Perfume.
spend the night, spend the night, spend the night. Intoxicating the night, the night. Slippery, large, extremely attractive, unpleasant smell, overpowering. There's been a tendency in the insect flower alliance for particular partnerships to develop. And for one species of flower to become intimately involved with just one species of insect. Spend the night, spend the night, spend the night. Yeah, wow. I have such a. <laughs> I'm getting rid of it. At the, I'm not getting rid of it. It's just kind of sapping away. But I've got this real romantic, you know, spirit, quasi spiritual. I probably took too many magic mushrooms in my twenties. But it's that thing, you know, like, yeah, everything's kind of complimenting each other. And when the fish is cleaning the other fish's teeth, they're loving. It. It's like, no, it just needs a teeth clean, and it's just letting this thing do it. You know, right. it's better for it to let something else yeah, clean yeah, its yeah. teeth than it would be for it to eat them. And you know, yeah, I'm finding myself having to realign my. My um, more Disney-fied storybook version of things to realize that it is, or everything is just looking out for itself. But that doesn't mean that it's not incredible. And right. It's not, you know, and it doesn't mean they're not still deeply interconnected. They yeah. are. They still do need each other on a deep level. It just yeah. means that it's not the case that someone blinked and you know they were automatically partners and friends yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was it. And I, I don't know. I like the idea of evolution better. It's it's. Yeah. So much more awe-inspiring to imagine how these systems slowly change over these huge expanses of time yep. than it is to think that they just kind of showed up and were ready to go. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, uh, again, David um, brings that up in some interview a few years ago where he's saying, you know, if you believe in intelligent design, we've also got to accept the fact that God created a hookworm that can only gestate in the eye of a human being. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, you got to take the good with the bad and it's not <laughs> yeah. all butterflies and lovely things. Well, that's it. Nature is dark. <laughs> Like there's some parts of nature that are not not great for us or for the organisms that are there. But that's, you know, when you think of it as a giant system, those bad bits are part of the system. Yeah, They're part of what keeps the whole biosphere running. And I think parasites in particular get a bad rap because we kind of think of them as like the bad guys. But they are also just part of this hugely complex system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we kind of have to try not to label some things as bad and some things as, as good, because it also has conservation implications. Like there was, um, I don't know if you've heard of the California condor or the it, the black-footed ferret. No. There are these two species in the U.S. that no. were deeply threatened. And so conservation biologists took captive populations and started trying to rear them up to release them. And one of the things they wanted was for each of those animals to be in the perfect health when you release them, fair mm-hmm. enough. Uh, and so they would just as... Um, Part of their their general thing, they'd bathe them in insecticides to get rid of the lice that lived on those animals, even though there was no evidence that those lice were, you know, significantly impacting their health. And so in the course of trying to save these two species, they drove at least two species of parasite into extinction. Wow. Because those parasites weren't found anywhere else but these animals. And so, but it was just that thinking is so much, you know, parasites are bad and we should get rid of them that no one really stopped to think, well... Do we need to? And if it comes down to it, why do we care more about that ferret than we do about, you know, the ferret louse? (laughs) What's what's the difference? Yeah, it's fuzzy and it makes it's got cute eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems like that's that that's a huge thing in conservation, kind of getting past the uh, the human centric view of things of what is uh, yeah, what is nice and cuddly and what is actually essential. Yeah, we relate better to something. No, and essential, even essential. I mean, does it have to be essential for us? What is even essential? Essential to our economy or essential yeah. to the food web? Or, I mean, there's plenty of things that, yeah, if you remove them, 
you know, you might lose a few other species, but economically they're not important, but that doesn't make them inherently less worth saving. Mm. You know, and it's, it's tricky. It's a really hard thing, but people really like things that look, the more like us they look, the more we like them. The more closely one watches insects, the more deeply impressed one is by their efficiency. No matter what man may wish to believe, insects are still masters of great parts of the world. Do you think there's anything going on? Like, do you think they're having an experience of life or are they just responding to stimulus? I don't know. Is there an in-between option? (laughs) Yeah, right. Because, I mean, they are responding to stimulus, but it's also like, do they have an experience of pain? I mean, that's something that we talk about, at least in in my work a lot, because if they do, then we have to change how we deal with them. Right. Yeah. It would never be OK to do some of the things that even just, you know, in agriculture, in our houses that we do if we thought that insects could suffer. Oh, and God. so yeah. right now, I think the majority of the opinion is that they probably don't have a negative experience of pain, but we don't really know. Do they have a central nervous system? Yep, they do. So they can definitely perceive negative stimulus and they'll move away from negative stimulus. But I guess there's that distinction between reacting to something to get yeah. away from it and actually suffering. So it's not just yeah. the knowledge that you need to move. It's that bad experience that we have. That we and, don't and, like. and that is the purpose of pain, right? You mm. know, get, get away from that thing that's hurting you. Yeah, yeah. So it, would, it, it, it seems strange to me that they wouldn't experience pain. Well, so if you look at some insects, right, you'll they'll lose a leg. Yeah. And if that was a fox or a rabbit, it would sort of protect that limb and it would clearly be doing things to prevent it hurting that limb, right? Yeah, yeah. Insects will often just stump along on the stumps of their legs <laughs> without blinking. <laughs> right. I mean, I saw a mayfly walk straight into a fire once because it attracted to the light. It just kind of singed away. And yeah. you don't see that in things you would expect have an experience of pain as an as a suffering thing, right? Sure. Because it's not just that nervous stimuli. Like, I mean, I can poke something and I can feel that poke, but it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we don't really know with insects how it goes. I mean, the way their brains are structured, we think they don't have the part of the brain that would be required for them to really be like, oh, this is terrible. But we don't really know. And there have been experiments with honeybees, for example, to show if you if you stress them out a lot, they get pessimistic. So their their <laughs> estimation you know, of what they're going to get is less than what we would expect if you yeah. didn't stress them. So, you know, that seems to suggest that there's they have something, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's so hard to know. I mean, I really hope they don't feel pain. Because, I really hope so, too. You know, even in my work, we try our best not to hurt things. But, I mean, if you even have a hive of bees, it's almost impossible not to accidentally squish some sometimes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about ethics in the lab and, you know, trying to do our best not to cause suffering. Mm. But it's going to happen just because they're so little and we're so big. Of course, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, even for sampling. So we were talking about needing to know the numbers of insects. Yeah. Often to do that, we have to kill the specimen and take it back to the lab. And that's because the features we use to figure out what species it is are usually small. Um, You can't often see them by eye. Sometimes you have to dissect them to know who they are. And if we don't do those things, then we don't know what species, which means we can't even start to plan for them. So we're kind of in this situation where we end up having to kill a bunch of things in order to save a bunch of things. And yeah. Yeah, we try to minimize that, but there's times when we have to. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess that's like a trolley problem, right? You know, kill, <laughs> kill two to save the whole population. And then we think, oh gosh, we're stressing about this and people are just spraying rain oh, everywhere. I know. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. But you have to, right? Mm. Like, it says good things about our species that that question is even considered. Yeah, that we care enough to yes. even wonder. Yes. Is, is nice. Yeah. I mean, humans aren't as bad as we think we are. We've come a long way. 
there's very few other species that kill each other as little as we do, which, I mean, seems really weird when you look at our history, but I mean... I don't know you from before now, and I haven't tried to kill you once. That's great. You know? No, that, but that is the thing that blows my mind. It, it, it's it's less the you know when you hear some awful story. Mm. It's strange to me that that is the anomaly. Exactly, it's strange, yeah. especially you know living in Sydney. You know where the, the entire world is living in one city, and for the most part, the wheels turn and everyone you know. Well, it's it's still shocking when someone breaks that, right? Like totally, murder is still a shocking thing yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not a normal thing for us. We're not, we're just not like that. Absolutely. <laughs> or one of those, you know, uh, once every few years you hear the story of, you know, someone collapsed in the street and people stepped over them. Mm. And it's like, what what should be notable about that story is that it's notable. Yeah. Not that it's, you know, that, that, that I mean, it's, I feel like I, if I fell down in the street, strangers would help me. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure they would. And I feel like those situations where people step over them, it's not even that people are like, I don't want to get involved. It's that people panic and don't really know the way, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I think there's other people around. Like, I reckon if it was just those two people alone, then that other person would help. But when you're in a crowd, I think it's easy to be like, well, there must be a doctor somewhere. I'm just going to mess this up, so I'm going to walk away. Yeah, no, totally. 99% of people will help you if they can. And when people do bad things, most of the time it's because they're they're stuck or they're trapped in some way and something has gone really wrong. It's not norm. It's so rare. I mean, there certainly are terrible people. Like, that's clear. (laughs) But they are rare. And the only reason they cause so much trouble is because the rest of us let them. Because there's far more good people than bad. That gives me a lot of hope what you said before. It's true. I have seen bugs crawling around on stumps and they don't seem terribly upset by it. It would seem like a mercy to just kind of uh, be a little computer that's just doing your thing rather than having too much of an experience of life. Exactly. I think it would be better for them, but I mean, I suppose you could make that argument for any being, really. I mean, you could say the same. I mean, you know, even when I asked the question of, you know, are they having an experience of life or are they just reacting to stimulus? You know, I mean, it feels like I'm having an experience of life, but maybe it is just reactions. Right? And like, I know I am, but are you? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Real I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the matrix. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Man has been doing battle with the insects ever since he first picked off the first flea, and I dare say, long before. Today, we continue the fight with fire, with radioactivity, with the most lethal poisons that our chemists have been able to devise. And yet so far, we have not managed to exterminate a single species of them. It's a little hard to hear him say that, because I wouldn't really, I wouldn't have pictured that if I hadn't just listened to it, because even ending on that note of like, man has been fighting insects forever, and no matter what we do, we'll never win the battle. Like, it's still phrasing it like there's a battle. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's kind of missing the fact that it's not. It's, you know, we need insects for all sorts of different things. So there's that cooperative and working with insects angle that's probably far more than the pest species or the dangerous mm-hmm. species. But it still puts it in that, like, battle perspective. Yeah, it really does. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's very jarring to hear him say, like, end on that note. Like, why yeah. would you end this whole beautiful thing about insects on yeah, the note yeah, of, like, yeah. oh, we haven't killed any yet, so it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Life <laughs> goals, humanity. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's what we know. <laughs> yeah. I'm much more um, um, on top of his Life in the Undergrowth series, and it seems like in that preceding 20-odd years, his perspective completely changed. Because yeah. I, uh, I think that ends with him saying, you know, a, a very similar thing, that they have colonized the world and it is their planet, and it ends with him saying... These small creatures are within a few inches of our feet wherever we go, but often they're disregarded. We would do very well to remember them. Do you hold on to hope? Oh, I mean, you have to have hope, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the point otherwise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I think humans, we're a lot of things, but we're also, we're very smart and we can be very self-motivated. Yeah. And it's true, we would do well to remember that we need insects for everything and that we're not the only animal worth saving on the planet and that we need to get out there and do stuff. And I think the first step to that is caring, you know, yeah. and even realizing that that's an issue. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the things we need to do are not so horrible that we can't start doing them, right? And we like, already like know. What? Like what? Well, just simple things. Like we need to stop land clearing, mm-hmm. especially here, you know. <laughs> Because we need we need those tracts of untouched land, you know, where we can just let things do their thing. Yeah. So we can keep our native species alive. There's simple things like we can plant more flowers in our urban areas and try to really preserve green spaces. Yeah, I feel like because we've been so removed from that, the rhythms of nature for the last few generations, I think it's a thing that's missing that people don't hmm. even realize that they're missing. And I think insects are great for that because you don't need to go to the bush to see nature. You know, a lot of the things that even in this video, we could see around our homes. You can see them in the parks, just sort of taking the time to actually look like go out and stare at a flower you know, and and just watch what's happening around that flower. And you start to see like there's a lot here, even in the inner city, there's still a lot. Yeah. I mean, Sydney is a beautiful city with, you know, hugely beautiful green spaces. We shouldn't ruin that. Right? Yeah. We, need to, we need to protect that yeah. and not think of it as just like a recreational space. But that's part of our urban ecosystem. That's the city's lungs. It's what's cooling the city. It's what's mm. pollinating the city. All of those things. Mm. Um, we need to do stuff like that. You know, we need to do something about climate change because that's not good for anything, yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and these are all things we already know. So, yeah, I don't know what the right way to go about it is. You know, we've tried the like, we need insects and we're all going to die if they die. But that, I don't think that works. Um, no, I, 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 a few people that I've spoken to for this project um, have talked about that, the, the, the struggle of how do you educate people without spreading hopelessness. I mean, as a scientist, 
I can help provide the information. Yeah. Like, I'm good at that. Yeah. I don't know how to deal with people. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I purposely don't study people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I mean, we can only do so we can say all these things, but we don't really have the skill set to kind of get that across. Which is why I also think it's really important for scientists to start getting out of our science bubble. Because, yeah. like, it's great to talk to each other, but at the end of the day, we're preaching in the choir, right? Yeah. We already, we're already on board. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the arts. They're the people that know how to talk to other people because that's their skill set, not ours. Mm. And so I think those sorts of collaborations are happening more and more. And yeah. I think that's really, really important. Because, yeah. yeah, we are we are not the people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what we're doing. We're, we're just passing on a deeply degraded planet. But, you know, it's not it's not done. I don't even think it's close to it. I know you think back to, like, the 60s yeah. when people had slide rules. Yeah, right? And you yeah. have computers. And they got a person to the moon, right? I mean, they were just doing calculations by hand. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. wild. I have more computing power in my pocket right now yeah. than they had on the planet. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If we could do that then, I mean, it's really not that big a deal for us to fix things. If now. we had a man, if there was, if there was the same level of will as there was in the Manhattan Project, mm. a global Manhattan Project, for ten years we're all going to get over our indifferences and let's all just unite and fix this. Mm. The potential to fix it is right there. Yeah, but I think we also need to stop thinking of nature as this other thing and humanity as another. Like we. We are nature, right? We're a weird little branch of it, but we still are nature and we're completely dependent on it because we're part of the same system. Yeah. And, and that's hard because we have a long history of being terrified <laughs> of nature yeah. and, and thinking nature's out to get us because a long time, for a long time, nature was out to get us. 100%. You know? You know, yeah, it can be really scary, yeah. but there is something to be gained for the individual by not not wrecking it. <laughs> right? Don't wreck the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That was so great. Thanks. Thank you once again to my brilliant guest, Associate Professor Tanya Latti. If you'd like to follow Tanya, she's on Twitter at Tanya Latti. And you should also consider following the Australian Entomological Society for general insect news. As always, massive credit to the incredible Sean Allen for his beautiful music and soundscapes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do what you can to get the word out. Give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and share it on social media. Next week, my guest is Professor Cullum Brown. We'll be talking all things fish as we sit down together to watch episode five of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.